Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Well, 2020 was a pretty boring year, pretty uneventful, especially in the infertility field. So nothing to see here. Well, actually, it was pretty darn eventful. So I wanted to wrap up 2020 with style. It's a little bit different on Inside Reproductive Health this time, wrapping up with some of the highlights from our popular episodes throughout the year. There are a lot of episodes that I repurpose all the time that I send to people that I share in other places. These ones that made the best of it just has to do with the year itself. So there were a lot of really great content to choose from. I chose these episodes because they tie into the ups and downs of 2020 from my interview with Dr. Stephanie Gustin talking about work-life fit to hearing from doctors Mark Amos, Paul Megarelli, Rob Kiltz that all discuss the affordable care model. Here's our top interviews from the past year. If you're interested in listening to any of these episodes in their entirety, you can find links to each of these episodes in the show notes. Dr. Stephanie Gustin of Heartland Center of Reproductive Medicine. I can see that the work-life fit frame making a bit more sense because I think you are just somebody that needs to have so much in different areas. And that for you, that being a partner in a practice is what allows you to fit it all in. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. Whereas for others, it might be like, are you kidding? <laughs> Learning about business is not exciting <laughs> at all. I sure as hell don't want to teach a workout class. Maybe I want to run a couple miles a few times a week and I'm good on that. Whereas I feel like the profile you're describing is one where you, you want to expand your business knowledge. You want to have the involvement in academics that you talked about. You still want to be a clinician fitness is super important and that it sounds like the track that you've taken of becoming a partner in an independent practice is what allows you to fit all of that in. Do you think that someone can be successful doing that today if they don't have that personality profile? Yeah. I mean, you have to be willing to, to have balls in the air and figure out a way to juggle them. Because it is putting more hats on your head at once. And and that sort of level of trying to quote unquote work life fit has got to be comfortable with that. But I think there are ways, you know, certainly I think some people were really smart when they went into medicine, they got like an MBA on the side or, you know, things like that, that would make it easier. But I think most physicians also went into medicine because it's a continuous learning curve. We are required to continue to learn all the time. And I think that when you go to seminars about physician burnout, right? Uh, one of the things that comes up a lot is like, what else can you do to make you happy, right? Like, can you have a side gig? Can you do something that's outside of medicine? Can you, living in near wine country, there's plenty of physicians that own wineries, for example, or, you know, this, that, or the other. 
And for me, at least at this point, at this point, because the business side of things is so new, it's it's very similar to that. And I think if people acknowledge where they need help, right? Like it's not, I think it takes courage to ask for help. So it's not something I ex- I'm very forward that I don't know a lot about what I'm doing and I'm willing to learn it. And then I'm willing to rely upon the people that we have set in place to help us navigate it, right? I think acknowledging that there is a learning curve, but it, it's quite possible for for many people to succeed, but you gotta you gotta trust that you are worth it and you gotta believe in yourself. Dr. Lowell Koo of Dallas IVF. And so what was that transition like going from a practice that had been in business for 10 years with one principal at the helm to now having, I assume you started off as an employee, but then a partner. What was that transition like going from one to two? You know, as a fellow, we never ever get any sort of training or teaching on on partnership, you know, and they never tell us about the business of medicine. And so so partnering was always this sort of mystery that was shrouded in secrecy that no one ever sort of talked about. So I'm really glad that we had this opportunity today to really put a voice behind and to really to kind of take back the the curtain and, and kind of show people how it kind of works, at least in our practice. So the way it works is when you start in our practice as an associate, you're, you're an employee. And and typically in Dallas, it takes about three to five years before the your practice is pretty mature and that you're humming along seeing patients. So after the first year, we know that the business is going to be able to basically supporting the, the associate in the second year. We think that the associate might be able to support themselves. And then in the third year, we think the associate is going to take off and then they should be able to partner after the third year at our practice. Some of our associates haven't been able to partner after three years, but that's okay. They partner at the third year and a half or maybe at the fourth year. So, so we're very open with our associates. We show them from day one, how they're performing within in their business, in our business model and our business plan. We show them the numbers, how are they performing? And then we kind of let them know so that they can hopefully understand that, okay, I need to maybe market myself more to try to build my practice even more so they can understand how it works. So we'll support them for the first three years. And then once they partner, then they can enjoy some of the headaches that, that I have as a partner. <laughs> <laughs> Which was the more difficult transition going from one to two or two to three? I think two to three for us was the tougher transition because from one to two, it was sort of easy because he was sort of the senior partner was so full of patients and busy. He was actually turning away patients. So he was losing business. So he thought, well, maybe we can have a second person to sort of capture that that business for the practice. And then once I started coming on board, it just, it took a little longer for me to get started just because more and more fellows were graduating and coming to Dallas and we were competing with each other. And so it slowed us slowed me down a little bit, but so that to go from two to three was harder for us. And then, and not just in terms of volume of building one's own practice, but just in terms of the structure of the organization, do you feel that, you know, there's a real shift from, is it two to three that is the biggest? Is it four to five? I mean, now you're at seven. So you've got a bell curve to analyze where, where do you think structurally operationally you really start to see, okay, we need to have different systems in place now. Absolutely. The infrastructure that we had built now really started to come into to play and that we needed it around the, after the fourth one was hired. We really needed to have a, an office manager that understood how to run a bigger practice. The office manager that we had at the time was with the practice for a long time, but she wasn't sort of experienced to, to run a larger practice. So we had to find someone who had more experience. So we had to build this infrastructure. So we had to find a practice administrator as well as an office manager, as well as financial counselors and coordinators and 
and actually marketers, we started to hire marketers. And, and so the, the infrastructure really started to need to be formally founded after the fourth one was hired. Bill Venier of San Diego Fertility Center. One pain point that I often hear practice owners and executives talk about is retention of IVF lab staff. It's not something that I can really counsel on. So I wanted to bring someone who can. And first, maybe can you give us some context of, is this a problem that you see across labs? I know you talk to a lot of other lab directors and have relationships with a lot of different groups. Is this an isolated phenomenon that some people are seeing more often than not? Or is this something in the field where retention of IVF lab staff is really an issue? It is an issue, Griffin. It's tough to recruit new people and get them interested in our field. There's not much out there from educational standpoint. There is a few master's programs and things like that, but a lot of those are people that are already in the field and have already attached to a lab, but, you know, want to get the book smarts behind it and, you know, some education behind getting a TS uh, technical supervisor type certification. So, and then you have to worry about training someone. And then once they're fully trained, are they dedicated to staying with you? Or essentially, once you're trained, it's really the demand outweighs the supply. So these people can go wherever they want, to be honest with you. So you have to do some special things to keep your staff intact. It seems to me like the problem of one should be the solution to the other. That is to say, if the problem with retention is because they're so in demand and they can make good money and have different career options, that should be enticing for recruitment. So why is the same problem that we're having with retention, meaning people can go anywhere, not drawing people into the field for recruitment? That's a great question because early on, you know, when I first got in it, most of us were animal science majors. So we already had a career in something else, but we had the manipulation skills with eggs and embryos and that type of thing. So we were, let's say, semi-trained already before moving to the human field and human IVF labs. Nowadays, they're coming to us with really absolutely no experience. And the time and dedication that's needed to train someone is really putting a strain on the lab. The workload has increased, so our time has decreased to train people. I'm not sure if that's answering your question directly. But, you know, once you have someone trained, there could be someone down down the street or, you know, an hour away that says, hey, we'll give you double what you're making or something, you know, ridiculous like that. I mean, the lack of supply is definitely driving up salaries and... We have to keep up with it. And it used to be, hey, let's look at this every three to five years. This has to be looked at annually. And you have to get together with local lab directors in your area. You know, even if the physicians don't get along, the embryologists tend to get along. The the lab directors need to, you know, get together, meet, you know, a couple times a year or something. Hey, this is where we're at. This is, you know, in the range of what we're paying you know, the tiers of embryology, you know, where do we fit into that and those types of things. So, and that's going to change in each region. Rita Gruber of the Gruber Group. 
if the good people start leaving. Have you found that to happen? I've lived that. I've been oh. that person that in, <laughs> okay. the, in the corporate world. And it's part of the reason why I wanted to start my own company because I noticed I worked in radio advertising and sales for my first real job. And I did that for half a decade. And I noticed that the that the people that were excellent, that brought the most value to the company were treated the same as the people who were cancer cells within the company. In fact, sometimes they were, they were treated worse because they didn't complain. And sometimes the people that were the cancer cells were the squeaky wheel and got more attention. And it really right. made for an organization that wasn't high growth, that wasn't forward thinking, that wasn't adapting to change. And I thought, you know, it would just be so much better if the good people were rewarded, the the middle people were mentored to to perform more like the the great people, and and then the lousy people, if they really are sabotaging, are let go immediately. Well, that's correct, absolutely correct. So, you know, again, that's you could have another podcast seriously just on performance management and talent development, okay, within a practice, because yes, time and time again, if you have physician leadership that isn't paying attention, and you have department managers or leadership that are not listening appropriately, even to the silences, you start losing the good employees who say, what am I? Am I stupid? You know, I do my work and her work, <laughs> get the same amount of money, no recognition, and she's still here getting an average performance evaluation. I don't think this is the culture for me to succeed and grow. So we're back to the mindset, starting with the founding physicians down throughout the practice that. Service and developing others is a key ingredient to patient success and good patient outcomes and the growth and the financial success of the practice. But yes, a practice cannot, cannot sustain good patient outcomes, good patient volume, good reputation in the community, and growth and financial success unless they decide to achieve good leadership skills. Now, nobody's going to be the perfect leader, but that good physician leader will learn how to depend on others to share the journey. And usually that could be the CEO. Learn how to depend on these people and their expertise. Learn how to depend on your clinical manager and her expertise. Etc. And that's good leadership also. Admit what you don't know and don't have time to learn. So I'll depend on your expertise. And then as you see the successes, you will trust these people more and more. And respect and trust influence are all critical in a good leadership culture. Dr. Michael Alper of Boston IVF. So you've got the administrative team in place. You've got a board of directors. You've got 14 partners. You've done acquisition. You've merged with another big group up until this point. Now, how do you collectively make the decisions of 
let's pursue private equity or let's entertain this offer that PE firm has presented to us. And I'm sure you get plenty of those calls. How do you make that decision together? So as you may or may not know, we partnered with an entity called Eugen, E-U-G-I-N, which is a company in, in Barcelona, in Spain. Actually, Eugen is one of the largest next to or in parallel with Evie largest IVF, uh, company of IVF centers in the world. Eugen has clinics in Spain, Italy, Denmark, Sweden, Brazil, South America, and now the U.S. with us. And they're a strategic partner because they're in the field. We've been approached by numerous private equity firms over the last three years, mainly because we're national and obviously large size. And I must tell you, we didn't have the right fit because, as you know, private equity is there to invest for the short term and increase the profitability and then sell in three to five years. And that's not my horizon. And I I would venture to believe it's not the horizon of most physicians, although some physicians are interested in exiting, you know, in three to five years. And private equity is, you know, could be the the way to do it, you know, if that's that's their personal goal. But we're more longer term players. We have young physicians in our group. We see our field is growing and we really want to have, we wanted to have a partner that was more strategic. So it's an individual choice for, you know, for any, anybody who's being approached. But, you know, what I tell all my colleagues who ask me these questions, I say, the most important thing about these transactions are the, is what the, what the day is like after the transaction closes. <laughs> because, you know, these are the... Uh, Which I think the jury is still out on a lot of this right now because a lot of these deals are only a, a couple years old at this point. So well, what the day is like, I think we're finding out right now in many cases. I, I'll tell you, and I'm just being totally frank with you, Griffin, is that I'm quite concerned about it. I'm quite concerned about it because when money takes over medicine, it's not in the best interest of patients a lot of the time. And medicine is not, and specifically reproductive endocrinology, is not like, you know, dentistry. There is, there are a lot of emotions. It's a complex thing. And I worry when a company owns an IVF program and their focus is on the money, it could be a real problem. And then the interests of the major investor and the remaining shareholders start to diverge. Dr. John Nichols from Piedmont Reproductive Endocrinology Group. I know you're getting people knocking on your door. Why haven't you gone down that route yet? Well, listen, when we first came sort of a presence, a big enough practice that we were getting some motion, people were hearing about us. And, you know, I was approached by several of these already. IntegraVet really was kind of the first, as as you're aware. They were sort of the first to come into the fertility field and set up these networks. And there were several practices in my area, not that far away, that are IntegraVet practices. And I know the people there, and they were like, oh, John, you got to join this network. Come on, you know, we want you to be involved. I'm like, show me the numbers. Show me where this makes sense to me. Because I'm not quite sure I understand why I need somebody to manage more. We're managing ourselves very well. I have a great office staff, great office manager. We're doing all the things we need to do, and we don't have to outsource. You just have to hire good people and competent people and take care of those people. That's probably the most important thing. And when they they came and showed me the numbers, I just said, listen, I'm basically going to be paying you a lot more than what I already pay my people to do now, and I don't see the benefit of it. And so from the start, all this sort of left the bad taste in my mouth about how this would work. And then as I see more and more of these other VC Groups coming in and buying out. And of course, I hear 
from these docs that have been in these systems and I'm hearing what's happening. Yeah, it may look good up front to get, you know, a cash prize, so to speak. But at the end of the day, coming back in and being an employee and then having somebody else that's outside run it. And this is a business, don't get me wrong, but it's not the same kind of business if you're running a car lot or you're running, you know, some other type of service business. Our business is predicated on, once again, taking care of patients. And and if you can't do that where they say, well, you have a great nurses or you have great embryologists and, you know, you want to compensate them for that or bonus them for that. And when you have corporate saying, well, no, we don't do that. Uh, or no, this is a pay cap. In fact, we have to drop their pay down because that's more than what we expect to pay. And so those kinds of things really limit what you can do to take care of your employees and make them happy. And at the end of the day, that's all about how you take care of the practice and the patient. Because when they're happy, they do a good job. You're compensated. They know that you're into them. They know that you're bought in. They become vested. And that's how you run a practice. When people are vested and people have the you know, go the extra mile, hour, you know, extra phone call, whatever it is to, to really take care of the patient. And that's not going to happen in those things. I, I just, it just can't. It's not part of that system and practice. So that's the biggest reason why we stayed away from it. It just doesn't work for our model. Dr. Francisco Arredondo, author of Medicalpreneur. So I think their argument would be, okay, Paco, we're bringing the general knowledge and then we're hiring people with the specific knowledge to be our chief medical officer. And, uh, and I'm not talking about any one group because mm-hmm. the, sure. the narrative yeah, is I, similar in, the, in that they say, we're not, we're not influencing operations. The concern from clinicians is they're going to, they're going to influence cl- clinical operations. And the response is we are not influencing clinical operations. We're influencing business operations. But even as someone as myself, as a consultant, as we start to advance just beyond marketing consultant, the more we consult, mm-hmm. there, there is an overlap. Where mm-hmm. it's like we're starting to consult people. It's like, well, we're consulting people on business, but it does affect yep. what they do clinically. And I can't tell a physician what to do. I can what only present it. But a, but a private equity person could if they own a piece of their company. Mm -hmm. And so talk a little bit about that. Yeah, there's actually a couple of articles that will respond to that. One of them is a Harvard Business Review article from a couple of years ago that it says uh, why the the best hospitals in the world are managed by doctors. And if you think about it, uh, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, John Hopkins that consistently are on the three uh, uh, tiers of best uh, organizations in the world from inception are managed by doctors. And why? Because you require credibility. Remember what I told you about? um, You're thinking of credibility. Yeah. um, So, uh, correct. I will tell you about trust. You know, uh, physicians only trust physicians in a lot of ways. So, if a physician comes, a physician that has walked the walk, uh, it, it has more credibility, not only for the physicians, but also for outside stakeholders, patients, the uh, suppliers. You actually have a lot of uh, credibility to external uh, uh, stakeholders, future employees, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, donors, a lot of other people, you will have credibility because um, 
what happens is that if the other article is something that it was uh, uh, talk about private equity in healthcare during the COVID era, uh, it was in Bloomberg Business Week, I think uh, uh, it was uh, in May of this year. And, and basically what it says is that, yes, in theory, it sounds nice that obviously private equity should not interfere with the daily decisions. But when their only focus is to make money and duty is to provide care, then it happens that physicians are serving two masters, the patient and the money holders. So it's actually very hard to do that balance. And uh, as you well mentioned, uh, there are certain examples where they are putting the incentives of your services, of your salaries. Remember those physicians that we said that had $300,000 of debt? And they're putting them a carrot that if you do more of these procedures, you're going to get more. Mm -hmm. So the way you actually incentivize, it may be against the patient's first interest. I have to emphasize that not everybody, every company does it, this, and not every private equity thinks that way. Uh, it, it must be uh, clarified, but you can see that there is an inherent conflict of interest by you as a physician having the patient as your first master and then we have another master. So that's why I say, unless the physicians play a role in the boards, in the management, embryologists in our field, embryologists, nurses, play a role in the management team. Uh, because in the other article that I mentioned about uh, the uh, uh, harbor of the hospitals, there is good evidence that when you separate the clinical and the administrative, in like two silos, actually the quality of the markers in the hospital goes down. Mm -hmm. Those two silos need to be in constant talk and even more in constant interaction and sometimes they ought to be the same. So uh, there is good evidence in companies that when you silo administration and clinical, the communication doesn't occur. That's one thing. The third thing or, uh, on the uh, private equity, which is, you know, the, the intentions are good. And that's why I will say that it's communication. The intentions are good, which is to become more efficient. The topic for the future is going to be that um, as we went to an era of globalization and we're going back to the middle where everybody is the same and we're going to centralized uh, accounting and we're going to centralize uh, uh, electronic medical records because that makes sense. It's more efficient. It, it makes perfect sense. The challenge of the conflict for the future is that more and more companies and more and more consumers want something local, want something much more local. So private equities management firms and physicians need to ask the question, yes, we're going to become more efficient more centralized in what? Perhaps electronic medical records, perhaps in accounting, but what it is working at the local level, keep it as it is. Uh, you know, I was uh, talking to another industry, I was talking to uh, one of the differences between uh, private equity firms in Sweden and in the United States. 
I was talking to a friend that uh, has a big company, not in medicine, but it was acquired by a Swedish company that it is uh, in the stock market in Sweden. And they have companies Swedish throughout the world. And they said, the only thing we want you to centralize is the accounting. I want you to do this accounting with this system. You're going to have these people. But the reason I'm buying you is because you're doing things so well. Otherwise, I wouldn't buy you. <laughs> and so we want you to continue doing exactly the same thing you're doing. The only thing we're going to do is going to make it efficient at this level. And we're going to help you with connections and this and that. But what is happening sometimes, especially in the, because there's two groups in, in our uh, field of, of medicine, the one that are working by acquisitions and the one that are going organically. The ones that are working by acquisitions have the challenge that they have to merge cultures. And that yes. is very difficult to do. Yep. You, it is, if not impossible to do, it's very difficult to do. Dr. Bradford Kolb of HRC. I don't want to jump ahead, but you've definitely tempted me because I think the IPO is a really unique. It's not terribly common in our field. We're more used to talking about private equity, a few private equity firms purchasing groups. Um, we have had companies be public in the past. Integromed was public for a while and Cigar took them off of the market. But what was that journey like? How do you, how do you go from being a, a growing group to deciding this is the right move? I guess, how did those discussions even start back when they were a pipe dream? Well, how did it go or how, you know, I'll, I'll tell you it was difficult because we started this process on the inquiry of a patient of mine from China. And he kept uh, insisting that he wanted to buy HRC Fertility. So eventually I threw out just a number off the top of my head of what it would take. And he said, okay. Uh, we didn't end up going with that individual, but uh, then there was discussion taking that. Was that a forget you number? We'll, we'll, We'll use the polite term for for, for our, the gentle ears of our audience. But was that a forget you? Like, for example, I have a forget you number that is a title sponsorship for the podcast because I actually don't want someone to buy the title sponsorship of Inside Reproductive Health. And that number will only keep going up if I feel like people are getting closer to it. But uh, I guess yeah. it, worst case scenario, if someone really wanted it, I would find a way to live with it. Was that was that number that you first got? Was that sort of a you know a get lost number? Actually, it wasn't because we've we've always entertained like what is our exit strategy eventually, um, and we have partners that have massive practices. I mean, both myself and Dr. Wilcox at HRC, we each perform over eight or nine hundred uh, egg retrieval cycles a year, each individually. So. I mean, how can I transition that practice to a new physician and get some valuation for that on my retirement? It's impossible. Uh, so we, we've always looked at, okay, is there a possibility to transition the practice over to another entity or individuals? The other thing that we really wanted to look at is, is how do we expand and grow our practice? And we need financial resources to do that, and but we need a lot of business expertise and guidance to do that as well. We're very good at position, as being physicians. We're very good. Uh, we became very good in dominating our local marketplace in Southern California, but we had a much bigger vision for HRC. So when I threw out that number, 
It was based on strictly business principles. This, you know, based on our EBITDA, this is the valuation of our practice for the amount of profit we were bringing in, the multiples that we were expecting based on sound business principles is what guided that. And it, it became an interesting discussion. But once we opened that box, uh, there was a flood of activity. So we actually spent almost a year with that individual's group. Uh, he assembled a group, uh, but it became an impossible ordeal for us. It, we were going to lose our practice. We we're going to lose our uh, control of the practice and just simply become an employee of HRC. Uh, and that was completely unacceptable to us as well. Uh, but we went through about a dozen groups, private equity groups and different opportunities. Uh, we had groups out of Canada, the U.S., and China and Hong Kong that were interested in either acquiring a portion of HRC uh, revenue streams or developing something much larger. And the group that we eventually settled on was Jinxing Fertility. So they came along after a year and a half of, after these discussions. We became very, I would say savvy is the best word I can think of off the top of my head about what we wanted, what it's going to take to accomplish this. Uh, and they were on board for it. They, they shared the same vision about increasing uh, our dominance in California and the West Coast, continuing with good medical care, allowing the physicians to control the practice as far as the practice of medicine. And also, they brought a vision about creating a global practice. So not only are we HRC Fertility, we have two partners in China, one in Chindu and one in Shenzhen, and they collectively do approximately 35,000 egg retrieval cycles a year. So it's created this unique opportunity to expand the clinical business, but also start to look at how do we develop research and how do we develop a global practice that is not just a sum of its parts, but is unique and can develop uh, unique avenues uh, for patient care and improve patient care and opportunity, opportunities for its physicians, nurses, and staff alike. Dr. Peter Klatsky of Spring Fertility. I think of innovation like that, which is groundbreaking in some ways and other things that other people are doing. And it harkens back to something that TJ Farnsworth had said on the show a few weeks ago that I actually really agree with that I've thought about both before and even more since. I want to see if you agree, first off, if you if you don't, why? And if you do, what do you think can be done about it? But his sentiment with coming from the oncology field was that there there is less peer-to-peer -peer sharing of best operations practices of uh, best practices, both from a business and clinical setting. And I really do see that, Peter. I, I really see it from independent owners, especially, I think, where everybody feels like they've got the secret sauce. And maybe you're a guy that really does have the secret sauce and you think, well, I do, and I don't want to share with folks that are doing the same. I, First, do you see it that way? Do you see that our field isn't nearly as collaborative as it could be? Why or why not? I don't. You know, I, I think we, I don't see it that way. And, and, and I'm sad that TJ doesn't feel that way. It feels that way. I, I actually think that there are, I started this off by saying we followed great minds and great practices that shared their advances in our field. And I, I don't think oncology even moves as quickly as the field of fertility does. And oncology moves incredibly quickly. But 
Why do we have egg freezing? Because of a commitment of, of somebody in Japan carried forth with clinical trials performed in Spain. And, and those publications came out in 2010. And, and, and by 2012, egg freezing was no longer considered experimental in Europe or the US. And it was, and people were traveling to other places to learn how to do that. You know, I, I think that Richard Scott and Bill Schoolcraft shared advances in pre-implantation genetic testing with the field. So I don't know that there's been a lack of peer-to-peer sharing. Even when, even when people have secrets, before we opened up the lab, we, we had Barry Bear, who's, who's lab director for Stanford, which is maybe 40 miles away, walk through our lab and, and, and tour it with us. And, and you know, in, in the professionals in our, in our field, I expect that they do share. So I, I know the embryologists are constantly sharing with each other what they're doing because they have longstanding relationships. It's kind of like when Nam was at UCSF and I was at Einstein, we'd always talk about what each other was doing. So, and, and you know, all of us have peers and colleagues in other centers. So I, I've not seen that that much. I, I do think people are tied to their practices. I think maybe some of the older docs, and, and we're a pretty young group, but maybe some of the older docs don't want to change the way they're doing it. And that's what he's referring to. And so they, they say, oh, this is really special because this is the way I've always done it. But, but I think most innovations have been pretty, it's hard to keep secrets in our field, you know, trade secrets, because it, our trade secrets are information and knowledge. For example, what I just shared with you on your podcast, everybody, I know nobody else is doing hypoxic ICSI. Maybe, maybe, you know, I, but I'm not, I haven't been shy about that since we've opened. That, you know, and, and maybe people will start doing it. People have to buy into something and believe that there's a benefit to it. But, but, but I, I don't think people are really secretive. I see both sides. I definitely see enough examples of both. And perhaps you're right that there is an age difference. I think there's probably a practice structure difference. The people that I see sharing are the people that you mentioned, plus yourself, plus TJ. The people that are growing groups pretty quickly and adding a lot of new things tend to share. And then there are probably another class of folks that they want to hold on to their piece of their particular market. And I often find those folks are reluctant to talk to the folks across the street or have nice things to say about the folks across the street or reluctant to meet with them or join some of the broader groups. And so embryologists do. And that's where, so, so, so if, if they're acting that way, that, that's what's silly. Like they may not be, but, but your embryologists are. When, when your nurses are at ASRM, they're sharing. Yeah. And, and, your, and your junior docs. Who, who both went, you know, through fellowship together are sharing with each other. So that's where, you know, we, we, we try not to be, you know, we, we try to have good collegial relationships with everybody. And, and, and we always want it. And the great thing about our field is, is it doesn't stand still. So what is amazingly cutting edge today in five years, four years, maybe standard of care, and you'll have to continually move the needle. And that's where like to really, really keep growing, you're going to have to attract and keep the best people all have that future in mind and all want to move the field forward so we have better patient outcomes so we can provide a better patient experience and i guess that part you need to really give voice to to your your new hires so 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 that that doc who who is straight out of fellowship hey you know maybe 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 that's the person who's going to be richard scott or bill schoolcraft you know in 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 
20 years. So, so listen to the suggestions that they have. Doctors Paul Magarelli, Mark Amels, and Rob Kiltz. So this concept of quality comes a lot when we're talking about the affordable model. Dr. Amos, you mentioned earlier the, the Target model, the Walmart model, if we're thinking of just bringing something to bear at scale. And some people will say, well, Walmart, that's not Saks Fifth Avenue, that's not Barney's, that it's a lower quality in their mind. Uh, how, do you, how do you respond to this issue of, of yeah. that cost must be related to quality? So I want to take a step back. So earlier you asked me, we talked about why I didn't think this model had taken up. Now I'm just talking about from a business standpoint, when you see these CCRMs now building on this stuff, from a business standpoint, I meant I'm surprised it hasn't. When I use Walmart and Target example, I'm, I'm purely only talking about an example of volume, okay? Um, you're absolutely right what you said. And I think when, what you were asking Magarelli earlier about the quality issue is, is that we are under the gun more than any other clinic. When any other clinic pays fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, amazingly, if they get nothing out of that cycle, they walk away and go, eh, guess it didn't work. They go to a clinic like mine, Kells, Dr. Magarelli's, and they don't get through. They go, oh, it's probably because it was lower cost. So we are really actually under the gun more than I think most clinics because we're, we're always against that. And that's one of the reasons you rarely hear any of us say we're the cheapest. Our goal has never been to be the cheapest. We've been wanting to be affordable. And the definition of quality is if you're you're doing best practices. And as long as we're doing best practices, you know, I would consider us quality. Now, one thing I want to talk about is what got me into this actually is because my own personal IVF story. So my wife and I spent $20,000. My wife doesn't make many eggs. And so we had to go through IVF and we spent a lot of money and we barely got pregnant, but we did. We were very fortunate. And it just was curious. I'm, I've always been a numbers person, always been kind of a business mind. I wanted to figure out how much does it cost per IVF cycle? Why is there a difference in cost between clinics? And when I looked it up, what was surprising was it, it actually isn't that expensive. And so it's interesting, like your title is Secrets of the Affordable IVF Model. But really, there's not a secret. None of us are doing anything tricky. None of us are giving less. If anything, we're probably giving more than most clinics. We're just not overpricing. So it's, when I first started, people said to me, you know, what's trick? What, what are you doing? I said, there's no trick. I just make less. And I'll even give you another thing that's really interesting about my clinic is that I love what they're doing. Matter of fact, I, when I was going to start, I was scared to death. I called up Dr. Magarelli and I said to him, I had this idea. I heard you're doing it. I'm scared to death. Am I going to go poor? Like what's going to happen here? And he told me, don't worry. It's going to go fine. It works. And so one of the things I want to do is I actually want to be one of the top clinics in the country, meaning success rates. And if you look at all of us, if you look at national rates, we're doing well, but we're even, you know, that 2018 we'll be in probably the top 10, 15. So it has nothing to do with quality. Anyone who says that is just saying that to distract from it. Again, we, we have some of the highest rates in the country, and yet we're a third the cost than most of them. This is about all of us are in this for the same reason, which is we want to help more people. We want to be able, as you said, more accessibility for people who can't afford it. As Dr. Kilt said, I agree 100%. There are people who come to us and say, I would have never had a kid if it wasn't for you. I could never afford to go anywhere else. And that's a great feeling when you know that someone who scrounges up from family marriage to make $5,000 and have a baby, it's a great feeling. So, Dr. Matt Retzloff of Fertility Center of San Antonio. So uh, that, that's why I, I feel strongly about subspecializing. When I first started doing this, I belonged to a group of other business development and marketing agency owners. 
And I constantly talk about subspecialized, subspecialized, niche, niche, niche. And the resistance that I often get are people feel like it's limiting. And, you know, if, if my team was just doing this all the time and it's like you are just going deeper and deeper and there is no bottom. Yeah. So I've gone more into this than anybody and I still feel like you could fill the staple center with what I yeah. don't know. And it's like you, you fix the first thing I ever figured out was, oh, you can get a lot of word of mouth referrals from organic social media. That was the first thing. That does not always equate to a top line spike in and of itself. There's everything along the way. And then you start to work on the next thing and the next thing. And you start to, to make it a system. And that's how we approach the, the conversation with you all. But I, I'm very insistent that give me a business goal. Give me a business goal. Let me solve that with marketing and biz dev, but don't give me a task list of, we have to do this many social media posts or this, this spend on AdWords. So give me the business goal. If if I'm accountable for it, make me accountable for it. And um, uh, so I I think that sometimes I turn people away from that because they just want to give people a checklist. You gave us a, a business goal. How do you feel about that process in terms of working towards a marketing goal versus working towards a business goal? I do think they're, you know, really, they have to be tied together. And in one of our very first meetings, it's not, you don't sort of just break down with, let's talk about the tasks. Let's talk about the end point. Where do you all want to be? And we talk about, you know, our five-year strategic goals, 10-year strategic goals. Where do we really want to be as a practice? And how does how can the the marketing tools be used to kind of reach whatever those goals are? And I would expect, obviously, I've just seen our sort of algorithm that you've come up with based on our goals. I can imagine that's not necessarily exactly the same for every practice. And, you know, it really has to be customized based on whatever that the unique goals or, or, or whatever the environment is for that particular practice. Um, but I felt good that, you know, based on our goals, based on how you said we'd get from point A to point B and have some metrics along the way that didn't just say, hey, we're going to start now and next year, let's see if we got there. You said, hey, every month we're going to say, hey, where are we moving in the right direction? We got a green light, a yellow light or a red light. And let's look at each of those areas and how we're going to kind of make all those green lights so that. When we get to the end point, I mean, the process spoke for itself. We don't even have to ask ourselves, did we get here? You just look across, you got green lights, you made it. So the system kind of almost answers your questions real time as you're moving forward. And you feel more comfortable and confident in the process when you see those changes real time and not just, hey, you're in a vacuum. You go off and say you're going to come back in a year and and tell us we're going to be there. Dr. Serena Chen and Dr. Rui Gilani. This is something that I have not been able to get as many people as I would like to see the utility of, of media in this way, of access, the patients having access to them in some sort of scalable way. Because again, we've moved mostly further away from marketing to new patients, but there still is all of this opportunity to move patients through the new patient journey that you just can't do in a half hour visit. 
right? Because the patient is getting so much. And to the extent that you can create more content, answer more questions wildly so that you have an educated patient with whom you have rapport connected and, to the and then practice you can customize exactly that 30 minute window so exactly is, is that what you're referring to Rui, when you're when you're is, yeah. is that is that part of the aim of your media strategy yeah exactly that because i think there's so many facets to advocacy and advocacy just doesn't necessarily mean what, what that not to say narrow because i think that has a negative term to it i think that's just the beginning of it but yeah advocating in multiple levels but yes so I try to use, we, we try to build systems where, where people can do that. There's some doctors that are just really good at doing it themselves. They do it before, whether, whether or not their practice is involved at the practice level or not. And there was a social media panel last year at ASRM, back in the good old days when we could all get yeah. together in person still. And uh, there was a social media panel, both of you were on it. And Dr. Crawford made the point of the patients that come to me that are familiar with me because they've seen my content are more likely to move to treatment. Are, exactly. Are, are, they're better patients because they, they trust me. They, they've been educated. Do you, I don't have any data on that though. Do you both, what, what's your experience with that? I would love to have data, but I think we both have a tremendous amount of experience that it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Patient retention is so much higher when they come in so well-informed and so educated One, like I literally have, what, what's the common trend, right? You, you see a patient, you put them through treatment, they have a negative pregnancy test because not everything works. And then they go to somebody else because they, you know, that is just expected. I did that. I'll be the first one to admit I switched clinics, but with this, they they know what I'm doing, why I did it. So one, they come to me with a negative test with, Hey, what are your thoughts on X, Y, and Z? It's more of a, it's more of a relationship. You know, it's not like I'm going to get up and leave you. It's let's figure out together because I know you tried your best. I mean, the amount I can tell you of messages that I get, like, I know you're doing your best. I know it's the same, no matter where I go. So I want to stay with you. I really like you. And it's this relationship, that bond you have with your patients is insane. I mean, people will come from all over because they feel that they're connected to you. Yes. And this brings up two big pain points for you, Griffin, that you're always talking about um, is, you know, doctors don't want to do things like advocacy and doctors don't want to do social media. And yet these are tools that can help you in your practice, that can connect you to patients in ways where you're not necessarily just sweating one patient at a time in your clinic and spend, you know, and, and trying to do just one patient at a time. These kinds of activities, especially like the, you know, the social media education, putting a little bit of yourself out there does create relationships without necessarily just one person at a time. The patients really appreciate when we share not only our knowledge, but, you know, a little bit of personal stuff too, so that to show that we are human. And I think when a patient feels comfortable with you on that level, you, they are more likely to continue. They're more likely to feel hopeful. And I think we all know that the, the, you know, in this age of tremendous technology where we can basically get everybody pregnant if they're open to treatment and they stick with it, 
um, the number one cause for not ending up with a baby in this field is the dropout rate. Mm -hmm. And, and I think we can address that through, you know, through education, awareness, advocacy, as well as create a better experience. If the physician is happier, it, it rubs off on the patient too. That makes a difference for, for healthcare and for patients. So I think it's a, you know, it's kind of a win, win, win the whole package. And Dr. Amy Vazada, the egg whisperer. But one, you said explicitly, I don't want egg whisperer clinics throughout the country. Why not? Like I get them, I get that the money isn't important to you, but why not for the period of saying, you know what, there's a better way of doing this. And if I'm at the top, I can bring people in, have more control. We can impact more people. The way other people are doing it just isn't as optimal as doing it this way. And I think that there's a whole crop of young doctors and nurses and potential staff that would want to buy into this. And we can help execute that for more people across the, the continent. So what, why so emphatic about, I get the money, but why, why is it, I don't want egg whisper clinics throughout the country. Well, I mean, if we can find a way to automate kindness and compassion and make it just ingrained in people, but like you said, everyone has different personalities. And the things that I hear other fertility doctors sometimes say to patients, it's like mortifying. And it's like, if someone had my name on their clinic, and patients were talked to in a way that was demeaning and degrading, I'd have a hard time with that. That would make me feel really, really bad. And so like I've heard patients told like, even if you had all the money in the world, you would never get pregnant with your own eggs and saying that to like someone who's 34 years old. And then, and of course, like people can say things, but who knows if that's what they were really told. But sometimes people actually use words like that, trying to get a message to a patient. And they think that that's the way to give them the message. But that's not the way to get people a message. That makes people really angry and depressed and traumatized for like years. I mean, like the patient who was told that, like she's still talking about it 10 years later. So, I mean, that's part of the reason is like, I can't, it's really hard to have someone mirror my approach and it's hard to teach if not impossible to teach. But through technology, there might be a way of using technology to make sure people along the way are getting what they need from a cycle without having like necessarily all the human contact. And I'm hoping that maybe some, something will come out of these ideas that I have. That's interesting. Why is it di very difficult and maybe even impossible to teach? Because people don't want people texting them. Like I could probably go to my phone right now and I'll have five text messages. And I tell my patients, I used to tell them I'm like herpes. I never go away. And what I mean by that is once they're pregnant, I always want them to know that I'm here for them. And now I tell them, I'm like your luggage. You always know where I am in your house. So if you ever need me, you know where I am. So please reach out to me. And I love getting updates from patients throughout their pregnancy. I consider every pregnancy and I ingrain this in them that your pregnancy is a VIP. And now more than ever, ever, it is so important that my IVF patients get the best prenatal care. Because as you've heard, there's an increase in stillbirths right now going on through this pandemic. And I think a lot of that has to do with telemedicine and not seeing patients face-to-face. -face. And I think IVF patients, are at higher risk of you know some things happening, especially in the third trimester, especially in patients who are over a certain age. So I feel like that by staying connected to my patients, if they ever need something, I can advocate for them if they need me to advocate for them. So you know that's not something that a lot of people will do. I know there are physicians out there that do that, but there's there's just a handful of us. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system. 
the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.